Today's sermon comes from 1 Corinthians 11, 17 through 34. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those that have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats of the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give direction when I come. I was reading an article this past week on things that we take for granted, things or gifts that we take from granted. And uh, I thought I would give you just a couple of those things from this article. Being able to breathe with both nostrils. Eating without a burned tongue or mouth ulcer. Amen to that one. Can't stand burning my tongue and not tasting food for a couple of days. Wi-Fi, access to clean water, music, the feeling of clothes fresh from the dryer, drinking a hot drink while wrapped in a blanket, which actually I think you might have been able to do that this weekend in Jacksonville. It was a little cold. Some of you that from the north are, don't know what to say at that that this was a cold weekend for Jacksonville. Uh, rain, people, and the ability to read this article. Uh, my wife showed me a video this weekend uh, of a church that had put together a short video on basically gratitude, um, you know, not taking things for granted. And it was one that it was, you can tell, is entering into the Christmas season and the video was basically this family <clears throat> that woke up and went about their normal day, and everything about their normal day was wrapped in, a, in wrapping paper. So, you know, husband and wife wake up in bed, and he wakes up and realizes his entire body is wrapped in wrapping paper. And he rips it open, and he goes, honey, I'm alive. I can breathe. Um, and then he goes to the, the bathroom, and the, the, the faucet's wrapped in wrapping paper, and all the faucets, and he goes... He rips it open and turns it on and says, honey, we have clean water. 
It's amazing. Then he goes down to breakfast and there's a plate with food that's wrapped in wrapping paper. He rips it open. He goes, eggs, bacon. We've got food to eat this morning. And then he, and then he leaves for work and he walks out. And of course, his entire car is wrapped in wrapping paper. And he's jumping up and down going, I've got a car. I can go to work. The whole point is um, to be grateful for what we do have and, the, 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 and not taking for granted things that are, that are gifts. One of the things I'm convinced we take for granted is the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper can become such a formal practice that becomes so hollow that it almost becomes just a going through the motions. And yet the Lord's Supper is such a tremendous gift to God's people. And that's what Paul is getting at here in 1 Corinthians 11. He's answering the question, why is the Lord's Supper such a tremendous gift for the church, for God's people. Why is it a gift? It's a supper of unity, it's a supper of participation, and it's a supper of confession. Let's start with the supper of unity. Clearly, there's a problem in the Corinthian church. Paul says it in verse 17, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. Well, what's the problem? Paul says in verse 18 that there's division. In verse 19, he says there's factions. Now, the problem then is division. The problem is factions in this church. But what's the context for this problem? Verse 20, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. When you come together, so he's speaking about when this church comes together for worship, like we are this morning. When they come together for worship and they are taking the Lord's Supper. That's the context of this problem where there's divisions and factions. Why are there divisions? Or what does it look like? Look at verse 21. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. Now, you should be thoroughly confused right now. And the reason is because in, in our context of how we practice the Lord's Supper, uh, one gets, goes hungry and one gets drunk. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So let me give you the cultural context here that Paul is writing in. When the church gathered in Corinth, they gathered in someone's home. They didn't have church buildings. And so typically, it would be a more wealthy church member that had a larger home that could accommodate the church and they would open their doors. And, and when they celebrated the Lord's Supper, there would be worship, but there would be what would be called the love feast. They would, they would eat and then they would worship. But here was the problem of what happened. This was a young church. So, so the, the members of this church were, were fairly new in Christ. And so you'd have these wealthier church members that would open their home, but they came out of a lifestyle in, in Roman culture where they would have these dinners and these banquets to, to sacrifice and to give offering to false gods. And typically this is what it would look like when they would have one of those banquets in Corinth is they would gather and there would be uh, the inner room of the home, call it the dining room. And that's where the, the wealthy host and the, the favored guests would gather. Then there'd be another room, maybe an atrium of the home where the less favored guests would gather, the poorer guests. And then there would be actually an overflow room called the patio of the house 
where, where just the, the servants and the guests that came, came late would gather. And at these dinner banquets, here's what would happen. They would have a meal, and then they would have what was called a wine ceremony, where they would, they would, they would offer up wine to this false god, and that would be followed by a drinking party. So what many speculate is that these people that are new in Christ and some of these wealthy homeowners would host the church, but then follow the social conventions of the day. So they'd have the, the love feast, right? Where they would gather for the, the meal as a church. And then, and then some speculate that wine ceremony would be the, the cup of blessing of Passover that became the Lord's Supper, that they would offer that up. And then there would be a drinking party. This explains why it says that some would get drunk. And I'm sharing this with you so you can go, oh, okay. Now I can see the context of how this, how this might happen. And so they were following the, the social conventions of the day. Here's what marked those dinner parties. And this was clear without apology. They were marked by social stratification. And by that, I mean, it was marked by the haves and the have-nots. The haves would gather in the inner circle. The have-nots would be out in the, the overflow room. And this was done purposely, without apology. In fact, these dinner parties, these banquets, encouraged division. And so now God's people are gathering, and it says one goes hungry, another gets drunk. Verse 22, Paul says, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? So what you see here is that this social convention of the day had made its way into the Corinthian church, and there's haves and have-nots at these Lord's Supper gatherings, worship gatherings with the love feast, the well-to-do and the poor. There's these social barriers that are constructed between the haves and the have-nots. And Paul about comes out of his shoes to say, what are you doing? Why? Because the Lord's Supper was intended to deconstruct social barriers, right? The Lord's Supper was intended to absolutely deconstruct all these barriers. There were to be no second-class citizens in the church of Jesus Christ. Now, how does this happen in the church today? Anything that makes you feel superior and others feel lesser or inferior causes social barriers, causes first-class, second-class citizenship in the church. And sometimes this is so subtle. Let me give you a few areas where I think this can happen in the church, where social barriers are constructed, maybe consciously, maybe unconsciously, but you've got first and kind of second-class citizenship in the church. Okay, number one. I would say white collar, blue collar. White collar, blue collar. Superiority and inferiority can develop between those of the uh, highly educated, upwardly mobile professional class and the working class. And that oftentimes plays into the wealthy and the poor. And that's one. Second area where, where uh, social boundaries or social barriers can be constructed, uh, conservative liberal. Right? Superiority, inferiority can develop around whether you're conservative or liberal and depending on the church and, and which category is the majority, others can feel marginalized, can feel like second class. Third area where I think this happens, schooling preference for children. Public school, private school, homeschool. And again, depending on the church and maybe where the majority is, those that are in the, the, the minority can feel marginalized. 
right? Or can feel almost like we're almost second class. Verse 22, Paul's language is one group is humiliated and shamed. That's the issue at hand. One group is humiliated and shamed because they feel like they're second class. Let me give you a, a fourth area. I don't know how other way to label this one. So I'll just call it this. Cool and not cool. Okay? Now, this applies across the board, but it really applies in middle school, high school, college. Right? Those that are, I mean, call it the jocks and the nerds, the cool, the uncool, you know what I'm getting at, the popular, the unpopular. In fact, I heard a testimony from a man just recently who started coming alive to Christ in college through a college ministry. And then over time, he started to get marginalized when it came to leadership. He started to get treated as second class when it came to leadership because he was not, he didn't meet the popularity factor of this college ministry. And it was deeply wounding for him. And he, he probably still to some degree is working out of some of those wounds. But again, a social, social barrier, right? Cool, not cool. Popular, not popular. Now, why does this happen? What causes this? to happen in the church. It's when anything or anyone becomes the highest ground of commonness other than Jesus Christ. When vocation becomes the highest thing that you hold in common, this can happen. When political affiliation becomes the highest thing you hold in common, this can happen. Uh, when schooling preference for children becomes the highest thing you hold in common, this can happen, right? when popularity or looks or the cool factor, right, becomes the highest thing you hold in common, this can happen. It creates division. It creates social barriers. It creates first class, second class, first class coach, whatever you want to call it, in the church. And the Lord's Supper is the meal where we together as a church celebrate and embrace the one thing we hold in common, the top, and that is Jesus Christ. And when that happens in a church, all of these social barriers get deconstructed. When Jesus Christ is the one person, the one thing we hold in common above all else, then all these barriers start to fall apart and go away. The Lord's Supper is a supper of unity around the one we hold in common. Now, how do we hold Jesus in common? So you've got, it's a supper of unity but second, it's a supper of participation. It's a supper of participation. It was common in, in Roman culture in Corinth. It was very common to hold a meal or a dinner or a banquet as a memorial for someone who had died. That was just super common. And what Jesus is saying, or what Paul is saying here in verses 23 to 26, is that the Lord's Supper is not a memorial for Jesus. It is a proclamation of a dying Lord who has risen from the dead and who invites our participation, our commitment, and our involvement. That's what the Lord's Supper is. And so Paul starts in verse 23. And he says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. Why does he say that? He's saying the dynamics of this meal, the dynamics of the Lord's Supper is not governed by social convention. It's governed by what the Lord Jesus says. Jesus defines it. 
It says the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The key here is he says, this is my body. It's not just a celebration of Jesus' death. It's a celebration of Jesus' death for you. And this is picked up in verse 26, when it says, when you eat and you drink, you proclaim the Lord's death. What are you proclaiming? It's not, you're not just proclaiming Jesus' death. You're proclaiming Jesus' death for you. That word proclaim, it's the same word that's used for, it's preaching a sermon. What Paul's saying is when you take the Lord's Supper, you are preaching a sermon. You're sharing your testimony loud and clear to say, Jesus Christ died for me. That it's personal. And what we're gonna see is that the, the Corinthian church and the believers in the Corinthian church, this had turned into going through the motions. Paul is saying, Jesus died for you. And the Lord's Supper is about taking Jesus Christ in when you eat, when you drink. Now, this is why, if you've been here for a while and you know in the, when we uh, celebrate the Lord's Supper, we say if you're not in Christ, to not to let the elements pass, to not eat or drink. The reason is because if you're not in Christ, then you wouldn't want to proclaim by eating and drinking that the Lord has died for me. All right, we, we practice the Lord's Supper to invite you to take Christ in. When we talk about faith, there's actually three components to faith. Faith is knowledge, it's belief, and it's trust. Now, let me distinguish those. Knowledge is just knowing what the Bible says about God and about Christ. It's just knowing the biblical facts about God, about Christ's life, death, and resurrection. Belief is believing that what the Bible says about God and about Christ is true. So belief is saying, and yes, I believe that's true, what the Bible says about God, not Christ. Trust is, is knowing, believing, and then throwing yourself upon Jesus, surrendering yourself to Jesus, resting in Jesus. Let me illustrate this quickly. I've got a chair right here. Okay. I can have knowledge that this chair is made of some metal, some fabric, that it's intended to hold somebody when they sit down. In other words, I can have knowledge of the product description that's probably on the bottom of this chair. I can believe, I can actually believe that this is a chair. It's not a footstool. It's not a table you put food on. I can believe that this is a chair that actually will hold someone, isn't intended to hold someone. But to trust, to trust means that I actually transfer my weight into this chair. I, I have knowledge of what it's supposed to do. I believe it does that, but there's a third, there's a third act. And that is I actually, I, I sit down and it holds my weight and I transfer my weight to it. When we talk about faith in Jesus, that's exactly what we're talking about. You can have knowledge of him. You can believe about him's true 
But faith involves transferring the weight of your sin, the weight of your life onto Jesus. You know, James talks about the demons and how the demons actually have knowledge about God and the demons actually believe that that knowledge is true, but they don't trust. They don't surrender. They don't submit to Jesus. Faith, right, is, is submitting to Jesus, surrendering to him with the Lord's Supper. It's saying, I don't just believe that Jesus died. I believe he died for me. You know, I've shared a number of rescue stories in my life uh, through my sermons, and you've heard some of them. One of them you've heard is the senior year of college when I went rafting, whitewater rafting on the Ohio Pile River, and it was near flood stage. Rapid one, our guide gets tossed. Rapid two, we all get tossed into the river. And I got rescued a mile down the river. I don't know how many rapids I went through, uh, but in the rapid, down in the hydraulics, wondering if I was gonna get spit out. I mean, literally time after time on that float down the river, I feared for my life. And then I heard from the shore, somebody shout at me and out came the life preserver and I grabbed it and they pulled me to shore. Now, I've got friends that have heard that story probably a number of times. They could rehearse it. They could tell the story. But they certainly couldn't tell a story like I tell it. Because that rescue story is my rescue story. When you take the Lord's Supper, you're saying, Jesus died for me. This rescue story that we're celebrating right now is mine. I'm not just going through the motions. This is my rescue story. I'm, I'm preaching a sermon. I'm sharing my testimony to say this is for me. And there may be some of you this morning, and I'll go back to the illustration of the chair. There may be some of you that say, I have knowledge about God and about Jesus. And maybe even to some degree, I, I believe it's true, but you've never actually taken the step of trusting. You've never actually transferred your weight, the weight of your sin, the weight of your life to Jesus. You've never said that rescue story is my rescue story. That's what Paul's getting at here in verses 23 to 26 with the Lord's Supper. That this is about Jesus' death for you, what he's done for you. Now, there's a second picture of participation here. That's the first, right? It's for you. Second picture of participation. Look at verse 25. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper saying, this covenant is the new covenant, or this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This cup that we drink, the Lord's Supper, is the, is the new covenant in Jesus' blood. That means that the Lord's Supper is a covenant renewal ceremony. What do I mean by that? Well, in the Old Testament, when God made his covenant with his people to say, I will be your God, you will be my people, it came with a ceremony. And then when it was renewed, it would come with a ceremony. One example is Exodus 24. We just went through it recently in community Bible reading. But that's where the, the God's covenant with his people is renewed. And the ceremony is that Moses killed an animal. He took the blood and he threw it on the people. He took the blood of the animal and he just threw it on the people. And then he said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you. Now, this is pretty graphic. But the whole point is this. When they sat there and the blood of an animal was sprayed on them, they were reminded that the blood that fell on them was not their own blood. 
It was the blood of a substitute. It was the blood of one who died for them. And that was the point, that as the blood landed on them, this isn't my blood, it's the blood of a substitute. The blood of the covenant is the blood of a substitute such that when you drink the cup and the Lord's Supper, you're drinking what represents the blood of another. Now, I don't think we would do too well if we took the juice during the Lord's Supper and just started spraying it out there. Put it in a super soaker and we just start spraying you. That wouldn't go well. It'd get your attention. Be upset, ruin your clothing. But the point is this, that when you take the cup and it passes by you and you take a cup and then together when you drink, it's to be a reminder that you're drinking that which represents the blood of another. That the blood of someone else, namely Jesus Christ, was shed for you so that you didn't have to shed your own blood for your own sin. Someone else shed it for you. There's participation. It's a covenant renewal ceremony. That you're involved, that you're committed, that it's not just going through the motions in the Lord's Supper. That there's this covenant renewal. You're saying yes to Jesus and you're reminded that his blood was shed and not your own. That takes us to our third point. So the Lord's Supper, Supper of Unity, Supper of Participation. Finally, a Supper of Confession. Look at verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Now, how do you eat and drink the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner? Look at verse 29. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. What's this mean to to discern the body? Well, here was the problem in the Corinthian church is that they weren't discerning the difference between the bread they ate in the meal to fill their spiritual hunger or their physical hunger and the bread as part of the Lord's Supper that represented the spiritual nourishment from Christ. They weren't discerning the difference. In other words, they were actually, they were going through the motions. They were pretending to proclaim the Lord's death and the Lord's Supper so that they could secure a good meal, so they could eat the bread. They weren't discerning the difference. Now you say, this is, this is a little hard to understand, right? Because when the elements pass here, I, I don't know there's anybody clamoring for another piece of cracker, right? or clamoring for a couple more cups of juice, right? Like they were when they had a big meal and then celebrated the Lord's Supper. But the, the heart issue is the same. You see, they were going through the motions. The Lord's Supper and that, that eating and drinking was just, they were going through the motions, pretending to proclaim the death of Jesus so that they could secure this good meal for themselves. But the Lord's Supper was just going through the motions. And that certainly can be true of us, right? Communion or the Lord's Supper can become so formal and hollow that all we do is just go through the motions and fail to, verse 28, let a person examine himself. You see, the unworthy manner of eating and drinking in the Lord's Supper is failing to connect the body and the blood of Jesus with your sin. 
It's going to the Lord's Supper as just a, a formality and a ceremony where you fail to connect the body and blood of Jesus with your sin. Or let me just take you back to Exodus 24. It'd be like the people. After the blood gets sprayed on them, them being unaffected. Yeah, no big deal. When that blood certainly represented the blood of another, but the blood on them represented they had sin that needed to be covered. Right? Almost this disconnect. So what we learn here is that the that the unworthy manner of taking the Lord's Supper is a lack of confession and a lack of repentance. Your sin does not make you unworthy for the Lord's Supper. Your sin is actually what makes you a candidate for the Lord's Supper. Lack of confession and lack of repentance makes you unworthy for the Lord's Supper. Now, here's the beauty of it. If you find yourself going through the motions, if you find yourself complacent, and maybe if you don't even find yourself that way, you just are that way. You're unaware that you're going through the motions. You're unaware that you're living a complacent life when it comes to Christ. The beauty of the gospel is that God will not let you remain there. Right, verse 31, look at what verse 31 says. But if we judged ourselves truly, that word judged means discerns or discern. What Paul's getting at is that they weren't discerning themselves truly. In other words, they, they weren't being honest with themselves. They were pretending, they were going through the motions. That's what he's getting at. And yet, even if we're in that place and we don't even know we're pretending, we don't even know we're complacent. God's faithful to rescue us. How does he do it? Look at verse 30. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Verse 32. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Now on the surface, these verses seem really harsh. And if you don't understand them correctly, you can move into a place of fear and anxiety you could move into a skewed, a skewed picture of God. So what do they mean? It means this. The real problem is we're pretending. What triggers the discipline of the Lord? What triggered the discipline of the Lord in the Corinthian church? It was their lack of confession and repentance. Right, certainly they were in sin, but they weren't confessing, they weren't repenting, they were pretending, they were going through the motions. What triggered the Lord's discipline was a lack of confession, a lack of honest repentance. And that probably speaks into why they were will, or they were weak and, and, and ill. Because we see this in the scriptures, King David in Psalm 32. He says, for when I kept silent. What that means is when he kept silent, meaning he, he didn't confess, he wasn't repenting. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. David, because of unconfessed sin, felt weak. His strength was drying up. But then the psalm moves to where he confessed and he found freedom and he regained his strength. All right, James 5, 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another 
and pray for one another that you may be healed. Confess your sins to one another and you'll be healed. It speaks to the, the, the critical importance that we confess and the healing that comes through confession. And if we are in a, in a season of life where we're complacent, we're pretending, we're going through the motions, the beauty of the gospel is that God will not let you stay there. He will discipline you into confession and repentance so that you find healing. He will discipline into you that. Why? Because he loves you. Verse 32 is a wonderful announcement of the comfort and assurance we get in the gospel. Right? The Lord disciplines those he loves. We read that in Hebrews 12. The Lord disciplines those he loves so that they're not condemned. Right? Condemnation, which is being pronounced guilty for your sin and spending eternity apart from God. That produces fear and anxiety. And what this says is that the Lord, God, disciplines you so that you won't be condemned. Romans 8.1, those who are in Christ Jesus, there's no condemnation for those in Christ. God promises to discipline you, even when you find yourself in a place of complacency, even when you find yourself in a place of going through the motions, he will discipline you. Why? Because if you're in Christ, he will not let you go. To use the illustration of the potter's wheel, you are on the wheel and God is shaping you and conforming you in the image of Christ, you can't get off the potter's wheel. God will not let you be condemned if you're in Christ, if you've transferred your weight of your sin and your life and, and, and rested in Christ. That means that God will finish what he started, Philippians 1.6. He will finish it. There's great comfort and assurance in that so that if God does bring discipline into your life, he's doing it to rescue you to drive you to confession and repentance where you'll find healing. Something absolutely beautiful about confession to one another and to God. It's freeing because that's how God brings his healing and continues to shape you and to form you into the image of his son, Jesus. You know, some gifts are hard to receive, aren't they? Because to receive some gifts, you have to swallow your pride. Uh, if a friend, if you unwrap a gift from a friend and it's a dieting book, or if you unwrap a gift from a friend and the title of the book is Overcoming Selfishness, and, you, and, and if you say to those friends, thank you very much, in essence, what you're saying is, yes, I'm obnoxious and overweight. You're acknowledging, yes, I am that. See, some gifts are hard to receive because they require you to admit your helplessness and your, your flaws and your need. And the Lord's Supper is that kind of gift because to receive the Lord's Supper, to receive the bread and to receive the cup you have to admit that you are so lost and so sinful and so unable to save yourself that nothing less than the death of the Son of God himself could save you. That's why the Lord's Supper is such a tremendous gift. Let's pray.
Oh, Father, we certainly do confess our pride. We understand and we recognize that our pride is the root of all kinds of evil, all kinds of sin. That we are wired towards sinfully as a result of a fall towards independence from you and we exercise that independence in so many ways. And yet, Father, you give us a reminder in the Lord's Supper of our need for dependence. That to receive it, we have to admit that we're flawed, that we're sinful, that we're lost, that we can't save ourselves, that we have to trust you, Jesus, your death and your resurrection to save us and to give us new life. Oh, Father, would you as a church, would you renew our understanding of the Lord's Supper? Would you renew our appreciation of it? Would you renew our love for it? That we wouldn't just go through the motions, but that it would be a covenant renewal ceremony that we participate in and in a very tangible way with what we taste in the, in the cup and what we taste when we eat. In a tangible way, we take you in again, Jesus. And that we confess our sin, we confess our rebellion, and we find grace and healing through those elements that you give us. Father, I pray for those here that have not taken the step of trusting you, Jesus. That maybe they've had knowledge of you, knowledge of what the Bible says about you, even belief that maybe it's true, but have never actually taken that step of trust to transfer the weight of their sin and their life onto you, Jesus. Father, I pray that you would draw them. The Holy Spirit, that you would bring them to that place. That they would surrender to you, Jesus. Father, as we continue to worship, would you rid us of our pride and would you clothe us in humility? We pray this all in Christ's name, amen.